Well, hi friends, I'm Andrew, and I'd love to add my welcome to Lachlan's. I'm one of the pastors here at EV, and today we come to the end of John's Gospel. Uh, it's been a great journey, and if you've missed any of it, then I invite you to check out our resources page on our website. We'll also be answering any questions you have over at our Zoom session after the service, and so you can text those questions through to the number on the screen. Well, the end of Level 4 lockdown is in sight. I, I bet you're excited. <laughs> what will you do with your newfound freedom? I know it's not going to be much freedom yet, but what have you been missing most? For me, I've been missing not being able to get out on the water or, or go to the beach. I've been missing seeing all of you. Zoom just isn't the same. Uh, but perhaps you've missed not being able to go to the movies. You know, Christy and I, we enjoy going to the movies occasionally. Uh, we don't get to go that often these days, you know, hashtag kids and all that. But when we do go, we usually make the most of the experience. Uh, we'll grab a choc top ice cream, we'll settle into the comfortable seats, we'll switch off our phones knowing that we're about to have 100 minutes of uninterrupted viewing. And as the final scene of any movie comes to a close, you really are faced with a choice. Do you get up and race out of the cinema, head home to the kids, relieve the babysitter, or do you just sit there as the credits roll? discussing the visual experience you've just witnessed. And sometimes Christy and I are even the last ones out of a cinema. Well, have you ever had that experience where that movie felt like it ended prematurely? Uh, feels like the character development hadn't quite finished. That the relational tension wasn't resolved. And then as, as if the producers knew you were going to be sitting there, uh, asking those exact questions, a post-credit scene plays. Now, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean films are famous for doing this. Did you know that every single one of the five films has a post-credit scene? You should check it out sometime. It's easy for us to get to the end of chapter 20 of John and, and to think that there's not much else to see here. For some, the, the climactic end to chapter 20 was enough, and rightly so. John gives us the purpose of his whole gospel account in chapter 20, verse 31. It says this, these things are written that you may go on believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But the Gospel of John has a post-credit scene. And for those of us who have stuck around for the credits, those of you who have tuned back in again this week, you're in for a real treat. Because whatever happened between Peter and Jesus... Uh, and who is this mysterious, beloved disciple that keeps making a cameo appearance in John's Gospel? Well, like any good story, the last chapter masterfully ties together these loose ends, as we're about to see. And so, as the transition fades through black, chapter 21 opens with another revealing of the resurrected Jesus. Now, it's been some time after the first two appearances to the disciples in Jerusalem, as recorded by John. And having seen Jesus, the disciples have since left the city and returned to Galilee. They most likely did this out of obedience to Jesus' instructions. Uh, Mark records for us that Jesus said to Peter, uh, After I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And that's where we find the disciples, down by the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, as John calls it. It's a piece of water they know well. After all, this is where Peter, James, and John had their fishing business before following Jesus. And the first thing we notice is that not all the disciples are there. So in addition to the 
fishing trio. You have Thomas, who links us back into chapter 20. You also have Nathaniel and two other unnamed disciples, seven in total. Uh, it's evening time and, and Peter says, lads, I'm going fishing. No point sitting around. And like all good mates should, when someone invites you to go fishing, the six disciples reply, well, we're coming too. Uh, now you may have guessed I enjoy a little bit of fishing. I think it's a great place to be able to collect your thoughts and to have meaningful conversation, all the while doing something productive. I can only imagine what the conversation would have been like. You know, mate, how are you going at processing what we've just experienced in Jerusalem? Yeah, it was pretty hectic, eh? Thomas would chime in. He's like, yeah, but, but the Jesus, he's really risen. He's in the flesh and everything. Uh, Peter would then say, oh, I wonder when we'll see him next. Now, the greatest embarrassment for any fisherman, other than capsizing your boat, of course, is when you come home without any fish. And so as the morning sun rises over the boat that day, the disciples, they, they see someone walking on the shore. That person shouts out, Hey, boys, you don't have any fish, do you? Cast your net on the starboard side of the boat. As if the fish are on one side, but not the other. What is this guy thinking? But after fishing all night, you'll give anything a go, right? Even advice from a stranger on the shore. And so they cast their net out one last time. And to their surprise, an entire school of fish swim into it. So much so that they couldn't haul it in. You know, one of my more memorable fishing trips was with my father-in-law out on the Hauraki Gulf. I was with my dad and my brother as well. It was a beautiful summer evening, light sea breeze, uh, and within five minutes of arriving at our fishing spot, we were hooking onto fish. The delight on my father-in-law's face as he pulled in the first fish of the day and, and it being a decent size one as well. And you know, they just kept coming. Uh, we were pulling in fish two at a time. After an hour and a half, we had 22 snapper in the chili bin. And here's the thing, as a fisherman, you always remember the numbers of your biggest catches. And we headed for home, we had fresh fish and chips that night for dinner, it was delicious. Now, something similar had happened once before with Peter and the disciples. This isn't the first time Peter's had a memorable fishing trip. Uh, previously in Luke's gospel, we, we read that they caught a great number of fish and their nets even began to tear. And so it must have twigged who it was who had such good fishing advice once again. It was the Lord, shouts John in verse 7. Well, you know, judging by Peter's reaction, he's pretty excited to see Jesus again. He's developing a bit of a habit of jumping overboard. Uh, previously, he'd jumped out or stepped out of the boat onto the water. We read that in Matthew 14. But here he puts his tunic on. Maybe he'd taken it off because he didn't want it to get fishy. He take, puts his tunic on and he plunges into the water in pursuit of Jesus. Swims the short 90 to 100 meters to the shore. The other disciples, they, they sail the boat in. They, they're pulling the net of fish behind them. It's, they arrive and they jump out onto the beach. And there's this aroma of a barbecue waiting for them. Peter is there. He's, he's dripping wet. Uh, but Jesus has a charcoal fire going with some fish and bread of his own cooking. And he invites the disciples to sit and eat with him. It's breakfast time on the beach. And so the disciples, they, they sit down knowing it is Jesus. And yet they're still a little hesitant, a little uncertain. They want to ask, is it really you? Yet they dare not to. But Jesus, he reassures them. He meets their physical needs 
and serves them just as he had done before the crucifixion. Jesus loves them. And see, for these disciples, it's a time for them to adjust to the new age of human history that Jesus has brought about. The new reality that Jesus is not dead, but he's alive. And here, love has again been revealed. But more than a good feed and a catch up with JC, it's love that is restored. It's love that restores. The the biggest unresolved relational tension in John's gospel has been between Jesus and Peter. Peter has a big heart, but it often results in him getting into big trouble. So twice in chapter 13 and then twice in chapter 18, we see Peter saying and doing the wrong thing. In chapter 13, Peter says, You will never wash my feet, Jesus. Then a little later, Peter claims, I will lay my life down for you, Jesus. But both times he is rebuked quickly. In chapter 18, Peter is the one who jumps forward to cut off some guy's right ear, thinking Jesus needs protecting. And then a little later, we see Jesus denies knowing Jesus. Sorry, Peter denies knowing Jesus three times. You can imagine the guilt hanging over Peter's head. This is the damaged relationship that has still not been repaired. And although Peter and John were the first disciples to arrive at the tomb, uh, we've not heard from Peter since that betrayal. Not until now. And we get to listen in to Jesus' public restoration in front of his mates. In front of the other disciples, Jesus turns to Simon Peter and asks in verse 15, Simon, son of God, son of Jesus, ah, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Jesus is examining Peter's love in comparison to the other disciples sitting around the breakfast fire. Yes, Lord, Peter replies, you know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my lamps. Verse 16, again, Jesus asks, he says, Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, he answers. And Jesus says, take care of my sheep. And then in verse 17, a third time, Jesus asks, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. Now, it's not that Jesus has a hearing problem, nor does he just repeat himself endlessly. See, three times Peter denied Jesus in that courtyard, standing around a fire. And now three times Peter declares his love for Jesus on that seashore. Jesus here is making a public and powerful declaration to Peter. Forgiveness is extended and love restores Peter to his position within Jesus' ministry. You see, the future of ministry work for Peter depended not only on the forgiveness from Jesus, but also on reinstatement amongst the disciples. Now, you and I, we've all got our quota of regrets. Uh, None of us are perfect. We're all broken people living in a broken world. And look, perhaps you're tuning in today and you're feeling a sense of guilt between you and Jesus. Like you've denied Jesus one too many times. And maybe you've done something you deeply regret. Something in the past that still plagues your conscience. Well, here we see the forgiveness of Jesus. This is what he's come to do. To absorb the consequences of our failings. Of our sin and shame and guilt and godlessness. Jesus is faithful to forgive unfaithfulness. There is nothing you can do that, sorry, there is nothing you've done that God doesn't already know about. Nor is there anything too great that Jesus can't forgive. 
If you haven't experienced yet the restoring love of Jesus, can I invite you to explore his claims, to be Lord of your life? He loves you and and wants a restored relationship with you. But look, maybe you are someone who does trust Jesus, but you have broken relationship with a Christian brother or sister. As we go about life, we inadvertently offend one another, even while God works in our lives, shaping us to be more like Him. We're broken people who are called to forgive and to restore relationships. Now, that might be hard and and reconciliation won't necessarily mean things will go back to exactly how they were. But, But here we have a picture of two friends whose relationship is restored so that the gospel can continue to go forth. Friends, Christians are called to be different from the world around us. And that means the local church is called to be different. Do you love Jesus? Because if you do, you will take action to restore relationships like he does. And one of the primary ways Christians are different is by our Christ-like way of dealing with broken relationships, especially within our church. Here at EV, we need to be people who raise things with each other and seek restoration. Are there relationships that you need to resolve? That by seeing what Jesus did for us and that the, our sins are forgiven in him, is, is there someone you need to forgive? Or, or to ask for forgiveness. Go to them. Like Jesus does to Peter. On the basis of Jesus' death in our place, would you seek restoration? His love towards us compels us to do so. But we shouldn't miss the fact that the emphasis is really here on the pastoral heart of Peter. Jesus has used the sheep-shepherd motif earlier and descri- to describe his role. In chapter 10, he calls himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And with Jesus now preparing to go away, that that baton is to be passed to the disciples. And specifically to Peter, he, he invites Peter here to shepherd his sheep, to love them, to feed them, to protect them. And these activities are linked. To, to shepherd is to feed. And importantly, we must note that they're still Jesus' sheep. But he's entrusting them to Peter as an under-shepherd. And God has continued to entrust his lambs and sheep to little-s shepherds throughout history. Friends, you don't belong to me or to Lachlan or to Rowan. You belong to Christ. We belong to each other, but as pastors, we have accepted that role of loving and leading Auckland DV as a church. That's what a pastor is. But what does that look like? What does it mean to shepherd and to feed Jesus' sheep? Well, there's lots in here for us as your leaders. But I think it means at least four things. Firstly, uh, it means to love Jesus. You see, leaders within churches are those who first and foremost love Jesus. And Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? If a pastor loves Christ, he will love the people who belong to Christ. So please pray for your pastors and your connect group leaders, to to love Jesus. We're not immune to shifting our eyes off of Jesus. So to love is the first. Secondly, it means to feed, to feed the sheep the word of God. As the disciples learned from Jesus and they, they wrote that word down, pastors are to feed the sheep with the word of God. Everything tested against the word of God. There's no secret knowledge, no special revelation that pastors get that others don't. A pastor is simply charged with the responsibility of ensuring the word of God is what leads the sheep. 
It's the Word of God that grows you and equips you. That's why we're in the habit each week here at EV to open the Bible together. So pastors are to love Jesus, they're to feed out the Word of God, and to thirdly, they're to guide, guiding the sheep into truth and righteousness and, and therefore into life. And pastors don't own the sheep, but they are to take good care of them, like their own, equipping the sheep for works of service. It's a helpful point to remember that like any shepherd, pastors are trying to lovingly lead the sheep by the word of God into all truth. And fourthly, it's to sacrificially serve and protect. Pastors may be first amongst equals, but we are those who lead through willing service. The servant-hearted nature of church leaders is a chief character trait. And just like a ship's captain or an airline pilot, the leader stays till the end. Make sure that everyone is safe. Well, a pastor has willingly said, I'll lay down my life to see you, the sheep, grow and be guided into safety and truth. And we won't always do that perfectly. Let us know when we cause issues. But you can also encourage us. Nothing brings pastors greater joy than seeing the flock that God has placed under them flourish as you grow in Christ-likeness. So four things, love, feed, guide, and serve. All Christian leadership, whether in church or in the home, involves a certain tension between authority and meek service. So will you pray for your leaders to lead like Jesus? And pray for yourselves that men would be leading your families well, that parents you'd be leading your children well. Such a privilege and such a responsibility. Now, I'm aware as much as anyone that some Christian leaders have abused their positions. They've been overbearing or overreaching. They've hurt their sheep. And, and I'm sorry if that's been your experience. But, you know, Peter, the pastor, will go on to write two letters. Two letters that we have in our Bibles. One and two Peter, they're called. And it's worth turning to 1 Peter 5 if you have your Bible open to, to see what it is that he encourages fellow shepherds to do. 1 Peter 5, starting at verse 2, reads like this. He tells us, Be shepherds of God's flock that are under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Well, Peter here pictures himself as a fellow elder who can encourage other elders in their shepherding and their being examples to the flock. Leaders who can be followed and imitated as they follow and imitate Christ, who is the chief shepherd. It's not just Peter who is called to be the shepherd to feed God's flock. The church has many leaders and all shepherds must give an account to the Lord Jesus when he appears. So, if you're someone who's been badly burnt by the church in the past, whether by people in leadership or, or not, I want you to see that despite the imperfect nature, the, 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 the framework of sheep and shepherd is God's ordered means of care for His people. If you're someone who calls yourself a Christian, then you're someone who belongs to a church. You're someone who belongs under the loving care of a pastor who will feed you and guide you and serve you. All sheep need a shepherd because a sheep without a shepherd is in danger to itself. 
and pastors need accountability too, don't they? Which is why here at EV, we, we have a board of reference, an external group of men known for their pastoral ministry in their respective contexts. Well, we've seen love revealed. We've seen a love that restores. And lastly, we see a love that follows. In the closing verses of John's gospel, we see not one, but two pictures of disciples. Disciples who are captivated by the res resurrected Jesus, and they follow him out of love. The first is Peter, and the second is John. So having forgiven and restored Peter to his apostolic ministry, Jesus describes what that ministry life will look like. What it will look like for Peter and for those who follow him. It's going to be one that's marked by a love of, of Jesus. Uh, it's going to be marked by a love of Jesus right up until the end of your life. See, in chapter 13, Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him. And, and here, Jesus predicts that Peter will die for him. Verse 18 reads like this, Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. That reference to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God, it echoes the reference to indicate what kind of death Jesus was about to die. There's a connection between the deaths of Jesus and Peter in their similarity as a follower of Jesus. And just as Jesus' death glorified God, notice here Peter's death is predicted to glorify God as well. Well, Peter, he lived and served three decades with this prediction hanging over him. And then history tells us that he was crucified upside down. Whenever any Christian follows Christ to suffering and death, it is a means of bringing praise to God. It raises the question for us. Will we die with that firm trust in God and a firm hope for everlasting life? Will we see out our days and die well to the glory of God? It's with this lifetime of service in mind that Jesus says to Peter, follow me. And so they get up from that breakfast fire and they head off down the beach together. And that's when we see another disciple who is following Jesus and has been for some time, a close friend of Peter's actually. In verse 20, we read that Peter turns around and sees the disciple Jesus loved following them. Now, six times John has been hidden away in this book as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Here's the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. Verse 24. John, the son of Zebedee, has been a personal witness to all that has been recorded in John's gospel. He's a major witness in the historical account of Jesus. And he's going to go on to write the letters of 1 and 2 and 3 John, as well as the book of Revelation. John is a trustworthy disciple who testifies to these things for us. And he has composed this epilogue to send us out into this world, caught up in the, the love of Jesus, with these two models of Peter and John shaping our identity and our interaction. Well, as we see John's account of the life of Jesus, the one who was before all things, the light of life, we see Jesus' love, a love that is revealed to us. We see the power of Jesus' love to restore relationships with us and God and between us and his people. And we see the love that follows Jesus for a, a lifetime of service and witness. Friends, 
the question for us as this post credit scene comes to a close is this. Do you love Jesus? And will you faithfully follow him all the days of your life? Let's pray. Father God, we uh, thank you for revealing yourself to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We praise you for stepping into human history and restoring our broken relationship with you. Help us to imitate Jesus as we seek to restore the relationships with those around us. May we love you like the disciples did, following you all the days of our lives. Work in our hearts by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.